Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space, episode 1205, for the week of Monday, October 26th, 2020. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Kat Robinson. Welcome, Kat. Hey, Sawyer. Glad to be here. Glad to have you joining us from the other side of the world tonight. Yep, hello from Sydney, Australia. We're now multinational. (laughs) You're not kidding. Multinational, and yet... We've got everyone else here currently from one single state. That includes Mark Ratterman. Welcome, Mark, from good old Florida. Good old Florida. Good to be here. And uh, yeah, well, it is what it is. <laughs> it is what it is. Yes, it's uh, probably the perfect way to describe Florida as well right now and the world for that matter. So you know what the world needs? More space news. So let's get into it. And we're going to begin with the latest from the moon, a big announcement from NASA that was just put out on Monday, October 26th. And we had known in the past that there were traces of water on the moon. Some of the Apollo samples have had water, but we weren't sure if that was from contamination from the ocean. We know there was on the dark side as a result of the LRO, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, and the LCROSS mission, which impacted the dark side of the moon. But now we know that there is water on the light side of the moon, and there's a lot more of it than we thought. Right, Kat? Yeah. So very exciting news coming from SOFIA, which is the uh, Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, which is um, run together with NASA and DLR, the German Aerospace Center, um, that based on observations that they made uh, way back in August of 2018, that there is more water on the near side, the light side of the moon than than we thought. Based on the data, they say that the location, um, from the location reveals that water is in concentration of 100 to 412 parts per million, which is about the equivalent of a 12 ounce bottle of water. So that would be trapped in a cubic meter of soil spread across the lunar surface. Um, These observations come from the Clavius Crater, which is the largest crater visible from Earth. So if you look up at the moon and you look through some binoculars, you'll probably be able to see where that water is. Um, Really interesting research. Um, I was reading through the the results that were published in um, Nature Astronomy. Uh, As you can imagine, they are somewhat technical as it is a uh, scientific peer-reviewed publication. But what for me was really interesting in that, besides the fact that there is more water on the surface of the moon than we thought, which of course has implications for in situ resource utilization. We all know water is incredibly important to further human exploration of our solar system and hopefully one day points beyond. Uh, but that they think that this water most likely comes from impacts of lunar material. Um, so there's a couple ways that water could that we theorize that water could come on the moon. That's either through um, chemisorbed water, so that would be um, different elements um, that exist already, different chemical compounds that exist already on the moon that um, based on exposure to certain processes can break down into water or transform into water. There's also um, water that could perhaps become from meteorite impacts. And then um, where they think that this comes from is actually from impact of lunar material into itself. But it's really exciting um, to get this information because of how much of it isn't due just to sort of, um, that this water might be more obtainable. It's either uh, the way that it is 
in is probably either within the lunar grains or actually shielded by the lunar grains. So if it's held within the structure, it's going to be more difficult for us to extract and use in future moon missions. However, if it's just being shielded by the lunar grains, which is an answer we don't know yet, these are um, questions that will be answered by future moon missions, um, that means it's going to be much easier to extract than if it was actually within that lunar grain. Um, so it's really a very fascinating discovery that has significant findings and significant impacts on what we'll do in future missions and perhaps how accessible and easy it will be to live and work on the moon. Um, you've heard us talk about it here on, on Talking Space before. Um, obviously, we have NASA's Artemis mission going back, but ESA has been um, working on a moon village concept, which would be sort of a research village or research station permanently on the moon. Um, so having access to water and not having to necessarily bring all that water with you from Earth significantly reduces the cost of being able to go to the moon and also would probably extend the time that we could have human missions on the moon when you're able to extract what you need from the, the surface. Um, again, it just reduces the payload that you have to, to get out of Earth. And as we know, sort of the most difficult part of launching and the most difficult part of, of long-term missions is that, you know, we are limited in how much we can, we can successfully get out of our atmosphere. Um, it's incredibly expensive to launch and it's difficult. The, the larger the payload, the more you have to take, um, you know, that reduces your capacity to put in other things. So, you know, if, if we had to carry all the water that we needed to drink, um, that means less room for scientific equipment and et cetera. So um, we don't currently have the technology needed to extract this type of water on the moon, but it's cer certainly something that many researchers around the globe are working on. So I'm really excited. I think that um, you have all heard me before. I love Sophia. It's just so cool. It's a scope on a plane. You know, it's, um, it's a mobile observatory. It's actually um, located in a modified... Um, airplane and so I love it anyway because I think it's the coolest observatory that there is um, and so then for it to make this very um, you know groundbreaking observation is just more great news. I think this makes the Artemis missions that much more exciting I mean we're already talking history here again to land back on the moon get boots back on the surface to get the first female astronaut on the moon but now there's so much more interest in those samples. So once we get them, we'll be able to tell exactly, now that we know there's water molecules in them, the type of water molecules that we're looking for, whether, like you said, they're embedded between the grains or not of the regolith, there's so much excitement with that. And then of course, we still have a long way to go with it, but it gives incentive for us to continue researching the in-situ resource utilization, ISRU, which is the taking that water and then being able to transform it into whether that be types of fuels or drinking water or any possible use for the hydrogen and oxygen molecules that you get out of it. It's just absolutely amazing. And when it comes to cost, I mean, right now, for some launch providers, it could be about $10,000 per pound that you're bringing up. Uh, SpaceX, I think it's down to about 2500 But all of this is low Earth orbit. We're going beyond that. We're talking lunar orbit and lunar landing for most of this. So that's a lot of water. So it's there's so much that can be done with this. And then again, once we get a base set up and are able to utilize the resources better, that will provide so much for future missions exploring outward. 
Exactly. And not just um, human missions. Also, uh, there's a future uh, mission that will be called Viper, which is NASA's Volatiles Investigating Polar Exploration River. Um, we'll look about this and hopefully those future uh, missions will be able to shed more light into what are what kind of water this is and how we would then be able to utilize it. So it's it's exciting not just for human exploration, but for um, robotic exploration. It helps us learn how we should design instruments. It gives us um, a lot of insight. So this is just, you know, it's excellent news. And it also goes to show you that um, a lot of our space resources and the space architecture, they don't they don't function separately from each other. They really do rely on each other. You know, LRO, as, as you had mentioned um, earlier, Sawyer, you know, had found evidence on the far side of the moon already. And um, I think Laddie as well found, you know, you mentioned as well. And so all of these missions, Sophia, Laddie, LRO, Viper coming up, Artemis missions, they all work together. Um, and, you know, they strengthen each other. So it really is a great example of the interconnectedness of our um, human and robotic exploration missions. I think it certainly highlights the how essential it is for international cooperation, because you've already mentioned things from different programs, different countries, and it enhances the understanding so much when it's shared. I hope the rest of the world science community can somehow get aside of their walk away from their differences and get together to do even more. Couldn't have said it better myself, Mark. Exactly. Really. <laughs> and can I also just point out that, you know, if we go back 10 years to LRO, LCROSS, and when we quote unquote bombed the moon, which we didn't, by the way, <laughs> it's just how the media played it up. Um, that was what it took for us to find water. We literally had to send an impactor into the surface and then catch the particles coming up in an orbiting spacecraft. We found this from the telescope on the back of a 747. I just want to point out how amazing that is. We have come so far. And uh, again, this was found, I believe, back in 2018. Yeah, the observations were done on uh, 31st August 2018 um, during one of those um, Sophia flights, which are really cool. I um, encourage everyone follow Sophia on Twitter or other social media. They'll post when they're flying and you can actually even follow their flight paths, um, which I think is really fun. One of my goals in life is to get to ride on Sophia once. That would make me really happy because um, I love airplanes and I love observatories. And this is an airplane observatory. How cool is that? Literally the best of both worlds. Exactly. Okay. And what you're talking about with Sophia, I've got to highlight a podcast called Omega Tau. And uh, the gentleman that does that actually flew on Sophia, did a multi-part uh, series of shows where he talked about the crew, the aircraft, the science, and it is fascinating. So check that out. I think you'll find it really interesting. And it'll only make you... Uh, even more looking forward to some opportunity for flight. Yeah, I will definitely check that out. Yeah, I think you've mentioned you've mentioned that before, but now that I'm in my uh, mandatory 14-day quarantine here in Sydney, I've got some time to listen to some podcasts. Omega Tau, science and engineering in your headphones. Yes, they they've got the science and engineering side. We've got the kind of recap and analysis side. I think we make a good pair to make sure you've got uh, both of us you're following us all on your favorite podcasting platform. While we're sticking with uh, explorations from 
outer space here. Uh, before we even get to our launch roundup, there's another really exciting mission that just happened that we have to talk about. And that was just about a week ago on October 20th. And this goes all the way back. You may want to give a re-listen to episode 809 called Tyrannosiris Rex. Cleverly. I'm proud of my title from that one. Uh, after the launch of the Origins Spectral Interpretation Resource Identification Security Regolith Explorer mission. Or as you probably know it now. Osiris-Rex. Uh, it finally completed its mission after launching in 2016 to collect a sample of a piece of asteroid Bennu. And it did. It used its TAGSAM, which is the touch-and-go arm, essentially. I've got enough acronyms thrown at you already. Um, put down on the surface of Bennu after orbiting around it for a while. And then the collector released a nitrogen gas can. And basically, when the nitrogen gas was released, it created a vacuum in a vacuum and allowed a lot of dust and rocks and particles to be collected in this collection mechanism. Now, they were hoping for, at most, I think they were capping it at about 60 grams. If nothing else, that's what they were aiming for for mission success. Needless to say, they got way more than that and they released some amazing pictures and videos of just the confetti it looks like almost as the nitrogen releases and it retracts here's the issue though they almost got too much uh there's a protective seal on the end of the collector head basically a mylar flap uh it's supposed to seal shut once particles pass through uh but they got so much stuff including some larger rocks it didn't want to fully get collected so it left the flap kind of open which let some of the sample leak out and has been very slowly leaking out ever since it was collected so instead of spinning the spacecraft around to figure out about how much they collected in terms of weight they've now begun the stow process a little early so that will now go into a special sample return capsule it'll take a couple of days to get that in and fully collected. And then once that's sealed up, uh, OSIRIS-REx will continue orbiting around Bennu until it's at the right point to be able to send that sample return capsule back to Earth, hopefully landing in the deserts of Utah in September of 2023. I'm so excited for this. I mean, as you know, if you, if you are a longtime listener and heard us talking about this, first of all, I couldn't stop telling an OSIRIS-REx and even commissioned a great comic um, from my friend Talcut of a of a Tyrannosaurus Rex riding an uh, an atlas all the way to Bennu. Um, but also, this mission, the PI, um, is out of the University of Arizona, which is my alma mater. Um, so this is really exciting because this material is the material um, that can really just shed some light on the um, formation of, of our solar system, the universe. It's very early material. And what's really cool about this, one tidbit that I, um, when I was listening to the coverage, is that a significant portion of the sample is actually going to be reserved for later study so that, you know, we're going to get this this sample back, as Sawyer said, in 2023, and we're going to start 
you know, using the equipment we have to analyze that, to, to hopefully make new discoveries, which I'm sure that we will, because every time we, we go somewhere new, we find out something, something new, you know, I think of New Horizons, and we discovered so much about Pluto that, you know, Pluto was nothing like we had thought. Um, and so I'm sure that we're going to learn that there's a lot about Bennu and asteroids that we don't know. But what's really exciting is just like, you know, we're still doing analysis on lunar material today, a significant portion, I think it's 75%, it's a large portion, but you know, please feel free to fact check me on that, um, is reserved for future analysis once we develop more more sophisticated equipment, new tests. Um, so that to me is, is, is really exciting that all of these missions aren't just about finding out what we can find out now, but ensuring that we still have the material to find out stuff when when our techniques evolve and we can find out more. So that to me is just, I'm so excited. It's such a cool mission. I still love that we're finding stuff out about the moon 50 years after the landings. Again, because we were smart enough to store some of it away in special protective encapsulations. And here we go with it again. Imagine, A, what we're going to find now, and B, say 10, 15, 20 years, even 50 years from now, what we're going to be able to learn about this asteroid and possibly the origins of our solar system or the universe for that matter. So it's all from one tiny little sample that happened to launch from Florida in 2016, touched down in 2020 and sent it back in 2023. Yeah, I mean, it's just like we sometimes talk about how, you know, the first astronauts that are going to walk on Mars are probably still in school right now. Well, you know, the scientists that might make Earth shattering discoveries, you know, universe altering discoveries even um maybe you know kids in grade school right now who are being inspired by the space program and might see you know might look at what happened at Bennu and say hey they're gonna save some of that sample i can grow up to be the scientist who can look at that saved sample um so it's sort of like you know ensuring that um future generations get to be involved in space exploration and i just i love it i think it's really great Exactly. And it was such a cool launch, too, on the 411 with the single booster. It slipped sideways, and now, again, it, it felt like so long ago, and yet it feels like just yesterday. And I have a feeling in about three years, we're going to be saying the same thing once it returns back to Earth. And hopefully we'll be just as excited then as we are now after a successful landing. So fingers crossed, and best wishes to the crew working on this mission. All right, uh, now that we've got some of those out of the way, uh, let's go to our launch roundup, of which, well, there really isn't much, even though we've been gone for about a month and a half, because of Scrubtember and Scrubtober. That's right, the community has given it a name because of just how many scrubs there were. So let's start technically with the end of August, and the first launch attempt of NROL 44, which Talking Space was there, and the countdown, it got pretty far in. We got about three seconds in before it scrubbed, and that included actually igniting the engines. So if you want to know what the scrub sounds like in a brief Delta IV engine fire, take a listen. Abort. Oops, sorry, I had to reset. I swear to God. 
almost as amazing as hearing that roar for about three seconds is hearing the disappointment in the crowd as you realize the engine's lit and the rocket didn't go anywhere. So even with a four-hour launch window, there was no time to reset. In fact, it was going to take weeks later, months, which leads us into the start of Scrubtember. Let's start with Starlink 12. That was supposed to launch on September 17th. That was delayed because of weather and the recovery area. Then was the next attempt of the Delta IV Heavy. Uh, that was delayed because of a ground service equipment. You'll notice that trend coming up a lot. That delayed the launch again, so then SpaceX said, we're going to give another try for Starlink 12. That one got down to T-30 seconds, and that was scrubbed due to weather. Then we go back to the Delta IV Heavy again, September 28th. Uh, they were going to try, delayed because of lightning in the area. In fact, one that almost struck the mobile service tower. Then they were going to roll it out again on the 29th. And as they started moving the MST, the mobile servicing tower, a hydraulic leak was discovered and they couldn't actually roll it back. So we got delayed again due to another ground service equipment issue. Jump ahead the next day, September 30th. And everything was going super smooth. Got down to T minus 10, 9, 8, and here's what happened. We got down to T minus 7. Again? And there was another issue right before launch. The difference is last time the engines lit, which means they needed to replace the igniters entirely. This time, thankfully, they didn't have to replace them, but you can hear the groans. So they took a while for that, and as of this recording, uh, we still don't have a new launch date for that yet. So we move ahead then to out of September and into Scrubtober. Uh, let's go right to the next day, October 1st. Uh, Starlink 12 tried again, got down to T minus 18 seconds, and then there was a bad sensor reading in the, wait for it, ground service equipment. Surprise, surprise. Then we move to October 2nd. Yes, we're still in the scrubs at this point. I've lost count of how many we've gone through here already. That was the GPS-3 Space Vehicle 04 satellite for Space Force. This one got the closest of all of them, down to T minus two seconds. We were there for it again. And here's what a third scrub sounds like. And keep in mind, most of the people that are around me, I was only there for about four scrubs. These people have been here for every single scrub that I just mentioned. Take a listen to the groans, and thankfully I don't have to censor out any words, although it came darn close. Don't tell me. Where are you, Jared? Jared. <laughs> Boy, look at that mess. Oh. 
this one, take a guess. What do you think the problem was? Ground equipment. <laughs> nope, it wasn't this time. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to. This one was an issue with pressure inside one of the Falcon engines. Uh, that launch... Engine is... equipment! Yes! There we go. Rocket <laughs> equipment. It wasn't ground service equipment this time. But uh, that launch is now rescheduled for later on in November. And the streak was finally broken October 6th for the Falcon 9 on Starlink 12. And we've had a couple of launches since then of some more Starlink missions. And I should point out that it did look hopeful on October 2nd. We did have the launch of an Antares resupply mission to the International Space Station, scheduled for about an hour and a half before the GPS mission. That one launched successfully, thankfully, from Wallops Island in Virginia, and Cygnus successfully docked with the International Space Station just a couple of days later. I saw that launch from my front porch. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the great thing about the Wallops launches, is you can see them from most of the east coast oddly enough one of the few places you can't is florida but it's <laughs> that was um that was a bit of a painful streak there especially being there for about three or four of them for me it's about a two hour drive each way to the cape and i drove there and back for each of them because of everything going on with hotels and covid in florida i figured it's safer just to drive yeah, i certainly spent uh september and october with tlc's i don't want no scrubs stuck in my head <laughs> <laughs> Sing, I don't want no scrub, and here it is again. The best was is that the SpaceX commentator, though, actually mentioned, I believe in the broadcast, Scrubtober is ended. <laughs> I was all set to call for a uh, boat in the box, but I guess that didn't happen. No, amazingly, the range stayed clear for all of them, with the exception of weather for one of those two of the Starlink attempts, one in the recovery zone, one at the launch site. But uh, thankfully, plenty of successful launches since then. Uh, another launch that we had uh, in the United States, but wasn't at Wallops or in Florida, was another flight of uh, the Blue Origins New Shepard vehicle. That was the seventh time that their booster was reused on a suborbital flight, carrying a bunch of science experiments while they still continue to test the vehicle. The capsule landing safely in the desert with all the payloads on board. And again, that uh, booster landing safely for a seventh time. So congratulations to Blue Origin as well. Can't forget all the little launch providers going there. And uh, we also have launches coming up soon with Rocket Lab as well. So there's a lot of companies and a lot going on out there. And Rocket Lab also, by the way, I should add, just tested their ground fitting at their new launch site in Wallops Island, Virginia, in addition to their current site in New Zealand. Who I need a drink after all that. <laughs> Don't we all? Non-alcoholic. Just to clear my throat from all that. And on top of that, uh, we did have some international launches as well. Uh... That included to the International Space Station carrying crew. That mission, the Soyuz MS-17 spacecraft, successfully launching from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. That took off on October 14th. On board was uh, Kate Rubens, a NASA astronaut. And then cosmonauts Sergei Rishikov and Sergei Kudsverchkov. 
I'm sure I completely butchered those, but <laughs> such is the nature, unfortunately, with my Russian pronunciation. That launch, though, was historic in that it took a super rapid approach, or as they're calling it, ultra-fast, to the space station, only taking two orbits and a total time from launch to docking of just three hours. Not even a road trip. <laughs> Seriously, like I was saying, it took me two hours to get to Cape Canaveral, and here they are in three hours going from Kazakhstan to the International Space Station, about 250 miles above the Earth. Show offs. <laughs> and uh, their crew of six was only short-lived, though, as uh, the other Soyuz that was on board deorbited and successfully landed in the steppes of Kazakhstan. That carried... Uh, NASA astronaut Chris Cassidy, as well as cosmonauts Anatoly Ivanishin and Ivan Wagner. So now the Crew-3 will stay up there until, and this is a unique one, it will not be a crew on a Soyuz that is going to be the next edition. The next edition will be a crew launching aboard a Crew Dragon from Cape Canaveral. That Crew-4 is scheduled to launch on the Crew-1 mission now on November 14th at 7.49 p.m. Eastern Time. That was originally going to be early morning of Halloween, a very spooktacular launch. But going back to the whole Scrubtober thing, remember that one that with the engine issue that wasn't ground support equipment? Well, it turns out as a result of that, they needed to re-examine the booster that would be flying crew, so that caused that delay as well. But when it does take off, Talkie's face is once again finally accredited for the launch, so we will be there to bring it to you as the Crew Dragon begins its first official non-test flight and its long-duration mission to the ISS with its crew of four. Exciting times with crew flight that we're launching them from the U.S. and Russia again, and even with the shuttle, when you think about it, they would only bring up one crew member at a time that would stay there long-term, and then they would kind of just do a one-person handoff. This is really the first time in the 20 years that we've been at the International Space Station that we will have a U.S. vehicle staying there to bring entire crew members of an expedition, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's really exciting to have a sort of, you know, capsule capability. Much easier to leave a capsule docked at a station than a shuttle. And think about the amount of time it's going to be docked there. No no comparison to the shuttle days and the flexibility that Dragon offers. Yeah, shuttle was there at most about two weeks. This is going to have to last at least six months. So, again, that's why the first time that we've had an entire half of a crew launched from a U.S. vehicle and basically staying there on the space station long term. So, it's going to be cool to see it just hanging up there on the ISS. And, again, exciting times that basically the next crew is coming from the U.S., and uh, I'm hoping that with this crew, they say, though, for the next crew launch, if you remember last time there was all the boats that crowded around the capsule, uh, hopefully there will be fewer boats this time. They've now added an exclusion zone for the area. So hopefully we don't see a random boat with a uh, flag for a presidential candidate flying in it as it's sitting in either the Gulf of Mexico or the Atlantic Ocean. For that, let's now head over to Mark. Mark, I always love you have some of the most interesting stories, so I'm so glad when you always have a story idea for us. And as you've mentioned, you work with the FAA, and this one has to do with the FAA's Office of Commercial Space Transportation. 
What do you got? You betcha. So October 15th, uh, the FAA, which I, I'm an FAA employee, but I didn't know anything about this, probably because I'm in a different corner of the FAA. But the uh, Office of Commercial Space Transportation, as you said, announced that they have published a new launch reentry rule, and it's known as, and it has an acronym, wait for it, SLR2, which is Streamlined Launch and Reentry Licensing Regulation. The rule aims to increase launch and reentry access for commercial space companies while maintaining safety. Safe sounds good. Now, in streamlining launch and reentry procedures, the FAA aims to be laser focused on public safety and only to regulate to the extent necessary. And unfortunately, when you think of government, oftentimes it comes with a regulatory burden, I think is the phrase I've heard. Well, get this. One component of this new regulation is that it gets rid of some old rules that stated, for instance, that a license for a launch would begin or take effect upon arrival at the launch site. For example, the gate at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida. Now, Sawyer, if you can imagine, here comes a rocket rolling up to the gate, and the guard at the gate might say, oh, I'm sorry, you can't come in. Your approval isn't, you know, set up until tomorrow at 8.30 in the morning. You'll have to sit over there at the uh, park and ride and wait a bit. <laughs> The bad part is I can picture that, too. Yeah, that's that's all in humor. But when you talk about regulations, there's so much that's so strict that has to be done that there's one or two ways around it. Either the launch provider complies with everything exactly the way it has to be or wink, wink, nudge, nudge. People kind of let things slip because it really isn't important. Well, now the regulations have changed so that an individual company can, in essence, negotiate with the FAA on when they want the license to begin. It reduces the burden on the individual stakeholder, and it reduces the burden on government to monitor operations that, get this, have little to no impact on public safety. It seems strange to think of uh, the government being reasonable, but that seems to be one of the effects of this this new launch uh regulations. Now, just for fun, there is going to be a significant uptick in the cadence and the complexity of proposed launch and reentry vehicles. 33 licensed space operations occurred in fiscal year 2020 compared to only three in 2011. Now, the FAA Office of Commercial Space Transportation forecasts a continued increase in coming years, and they expect a commercially viable human spaceflight participant landscape involving space tourism that could lead to 100 plus flights per year. Now just for a few statistics off of the FAA, uh, it's called Comstack, C-O-M-S-T-A-C, but off of the FAA Comstack webpage, they have a little graphic that shows 362 licensed launches, 22 licensed re-entries, 12 spaceport operator licenses, and did you know three are in Florida, 46 permitted experimental launches, seven active safety approvals, and 23 active launch licenses. Just for folks that are thinking, three spaceport licenses in Florida? What? 
Okay, one is Space Coast Regional Airport, and the operator is the Titusville Cocoa Airport Authority. Next is Jacksonville Aviation Authority at Cecil Field, Florida. And if you can uh, not be surprised, Space Florida, which is Cape Canaveral Spaceport Shuttle Landing Facility, and Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. I didn't count right. That would be four. At any rate, you can see that this whole launch thing is something that's going to be increasing, and the FAA has taken some steps to make it a little bit easier and a little more realistic. I was going to read a list of uh, uh, advisory circulars, but it would only give you a headache and it wouldn't add to anything other than appreciating that uh, in this case, less is better. Now, this is um, some of the first research I did within space policy is, and my PhD was actually on um, commercial space launch regulation and looking at um, what providers were using it because not all, not all launches are um, licensed through the FFA, through the Commercial Space Transportation Office. Um, government launches, so launches with government payloads, um, that are ordered by the government. So a lot of this national security, some NASA launches don't have to go through this process. They, they have a different process. Um, so looking at what launch service providers, um, when they need to be licensed, because a really interesting way to see um, where their business is or where they're getting business. Um, at the time that I did this research, which was uh, early 2017, near the end of 2016, um, you would see that I compared um, ULA, SpaceX, and Blue Origin, and ULA um, mainly has government customers. SpaceX was about a 50-50 split between government launches and commercial launches, and then Blue Origin was all private launches. At this point, Blue Origin has done some commercial launches, um, but it's it was interesting because this licensing process also reveals a lot about the companies, um, whether or not they're providing um, certain, like who their customer base is and who they're orienting their launches. So for me, I was excited, Mark, to hear you talk about this a little bit more because it's something that I've you know, done some research on and, and I think it certainly um, can reveal a lot about the landscape of space transportation and launch service providers within the United States. So I appreciated it. I'm sure everybody remembers at some point back in the shuttle program where they probably heard for the first time an official say, well, you know, we can't launch the shuttle until the... Um, Help me out here. What was it? Till, until the stack of uh, paperwork and documentation is higher than the shuttle stack? Is that what they used to say? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that before, but it sounds right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, that's the other thing is I don't think most people realize just how many different organizations there are that are involved with all these launches. Everyone just, when you talk to launches, it's, oh, it's at the Kennedy Space Center. Well, it is and it isn't. Why can't they just launch tonight? Well, they have to deal with the range and they have to deal with FAA clearance and they have to deal with orbital clearance and airspace clearance. And there's so many things that it's like, why can't they just launch the rocket whenever? Well, that's part of the reason is you need to get clearance from the right people for the right launch, for the right payload from the right location. Ooh, that's a mouthful. Yeah. And I've, I've seen this on radar displays and, and, Others may have seen this sort of thing as well, but uh, there are times that the, and not currently, unfortunately, due to COVID-19, but there's times that you can see the complete outline of the state of Florida with a whole lot of filling in of the middle with uh, radar tracked flights in the air. I mean, there's a phenomenal amount of traffic and, 
you know, occasionally you've seen a photo where somebody has been in the uh, the right seat or the left seat or whichever seat it is, but they've been able to look out the window and, and snap a photo of a rocket, you know, going up from uh, from Cape Canaveral. And that doesn't happen by accident because traffic was very carefully rerouted and open up a zone that is safe for the flying public going nearby to be able to still capture a really phenomenal picture and yet safe for the launch rocket and at times people themselves. It's a very complicated dance. It really is a dance. And Mark, I'm really glad you brought this up. So thank you for mentioning that. All right, we have one more topic, and we saved what I think might be the best non-science topic for last that isn't the moon or an asteroid. It still has major scientific implications, though. And uh, you may remember, we've talked about this a lot in the show, about the Outer Space Treaty, uh, basically uh, what you can and can't do in space that was signed by a whole bunch of nations. Well, now we have the Artemis Accords. And uh, Kat, why don't you help us break down what these are and what's in the Artemis Accords? So the Artemis Accords were actually announced by NASA back in May, but no text was available. Um, Just this past month at uh, the International Astronautical Congress Cyberspace Edition, because of course, like many other activities, they were unable to meet in person at Dubai. Um, So I... uh, participated in the IAC activities myself from my uh, desk in Raleigh, North Carolina. And um, the Artemis Accords are a series of essentially bilateral agreements um, that NASA is making with nine other states. Or there's nine states together, I think, including the United States. And that includes Australia, Canada, Italy, Japan, Luxembourg, the United Arab Emirates, and the United Kingdom. This is an agreement that the U.S. has drafted to sort of um, operationalize the Outer Space Treaty. Um, As listeners of Talking Space will know, the Outer Space Treaty um, is an agreement uh, on the uses, the peaceful uses of outer space and for making sure that all of humans here on Earth can benefit from outer space. Um, However, there's not a lot of enforcement mechanisms within the Outer Space Treaty and Arguably, several nations, including the United States, have um, skirted around some of those some of those um, agreements within the Outer Space Treaty. So the Artemis Accords are a document, not an international treaty, um, but as I said again, they are essentially bilateral agreements that the United States is taking on with other spacefaring or space utilizing nations, which sort of outline how we're going to take the Outer Space Treaty into the next stage of space exploration. Um, They do, the United States does plan to take this to um, the UN and QOPUS to uh, see how this can work and perhaps maybe in a more official uh, format with the Outer Space Treaty. So it has 13 sections. Um, of those sections, the first one is the the purpose and the scope, which is um, then saying that um, outer space exists for peaceful purposes, um, the implementation, so how this will be um, implemented, basically uh, the different instruments that are described, 
Um, section three is very short. Again, it just says the signatories affirm that the cooperative activities under these accords should be exclusively for peaceful purposes and in accordance with relevant international law. There's a section on transparency, um, which I think is self-explanatory. Um, an interesting section to me is on interoperability. Um, so saying that the signatories to this agreement, all of whom will be involved in the NASA Artemis missions to the moon, um, that they're going to develop systems and space architecture that are interoperable, meaning that um, they can be used by multiple nations. So sort of like a, a standard set of, of systems. So a good way to think about this, we all know if we've traveled to different countries, your plug that you can use in the United States doesn't work in the UK, the UK plug doesn't work in Australia, you know, and it, it's they're different. So we don't want to get to space and have a problem of a lot of different plugs that don't use the same outlet. Um, so that section five is on making sure that we're all using the same sorts of architecture that can work with each other. Um, an affirmation, section six is an affirmation of emergency assistance, which already exists under other treaty obligations. Um, scientific data sharing uh, is section eight. Preserving space heritage is section nine. So when we think about space heritage, we'll think of um, rover landing sites, the lunar landing sites, etc. cetera. Um, and then probably the most Interesting section is section 10, which is on space resources, but I'm going to come back to that because I know um, we'll have some comments on that. Section 11 talks about deconfliction of space activities. Um, so this is creating sort of safety zones around space activities um, so that uh, there's not interference with other things, that there's a safe place if you're having uh, space operations and space activities. And then section 12 is on orbital debris. As we all know, we've talked about it in Talking Space multiple times, space debris is a large concern. Um, they don't specifically mention this, but I think, um, you know, one, one big concern in space debris now, um, you know, apart from satellite collisions is anti-satellite testing. Um, so, this has been done recently um, by several countries. The United States have done it in the past, um, but haven't in quite some time. But uh, China has done some anti-satellite testing, as has Russia. And these tests can actually produce a significant amount of space debris. Um, so it's not explicitly mentioned within this accord, but certainly that's on the minds. And just again, um, space, especially low Earth orbit, um, is getting crowded. And there is concern that unless we take measures to mitigate space debris, um, that there is um, there are scenarios which could happen in which space debris could actually make it impossible for us to get to space. Um, you know, there there are sort of worst case doomsday scenarios where um, you have uh, a collision that then results in other collisions that then creates a debris field that is just impenetrable from Earth. Um, and so we would essentially be earthbound. Of course, because again, it's bilateral agreements right now, China and the US could not do this because there are congressional prohibitions against the United States working bilaterally with China in this area. Um, so that's certainly one downfall of the Artemis Accords is that as they stand now, they can't be a truly international accord because they leave China out of them. Um, and then I want to come back to that section um, 10 that I mentioned, which was on space resources. So we talk about this, um, we've talked about it on Talking Space, uh, when we talk about the Commercial Space Launch Act of 2015, which allows um, U.S. companies and private companies to um, go into space and any 
resources that they would mine from outer space would then be owned by them. We've talked about how that may be in conflict with the Outer Space Treaty, which um, says that nations cannot make territorial claims on space. So this agreement, the Artemis Accords, talks about space resources and says that the signatories note that the utilization of space resource can benefit humankind by providing critical support for safe and sustainable operations. And the signatories emphasize that the extraction and utilization of space resources, including any recovery from the surface or subsurface of the moon, Mars, comets, or asteroids, should be executed in a manner that complies with the OST and in support of safe and sustainable space activities. And then the interesting part is that it goes on to say the signatories affirm that the extraction of space resources does not inherently constitute national appropriation under Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty, and that contracts and other legal instruments relating to space resources should be consistent with the treaty. So this is the interesting part. So the United States has, um, the United States, along with um, Luxembourg and the UAE, have recently passed legislation that protects private citizen or private company rights to property, you know, to the extraction of resources from space. So whether that's asteroid mining, mining on the moon, mining on Mars, um, sort of protects this right that, um, that they can get those resources and then retain private ownership of those resources if they bring them back to Earth. Um, so this is, you know, the conversation now within the space law and the space um, policy community is, does this provision within these Artemis Accords constitute the U.S. sort of trying to codify that understanding of, of private ownership of space resources into some sort of international law or international understanding? Um, so this is the, the very interesting conversation that's coming out of these Artemis Accords. And I have talked a lot about this. So and I know, Sawyer, you and I have been chatting about this a little bit, and you've got some thoughts on 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 the Artemis Accords. There's certainly, you know, it's an interesting step. We've talked for a long time about how the Outer Space Treaty doesn't really have the teeth that it might need um, to address where we're going next in space. And so the Artemis Accords are sort of an interesting step into a new direction there. So my original question when that first came out to you was so basically that protects things like osiris rex and those kind of collection missions which is not the case correct this is for actual resources we're talking about here there's broad consensus within the the space and scientific community that resources extracted for scientific purposes are normal they're not making national claims this would be you know sort of if you take it far out into the future uh, sci-fi, this would be like Pandora, right? What's that um, uh, movie? Avatar? Avatar, yeah. So this would be like sort of a private company going into and establishing like mining operations on an asteroid. And their right to establish those, have a safety zone around that establishment so other people couldn't come into their area. And then also bring all those resources back on Earth and make the money from them and not having to necessarily share that resource with other nations. When we think about resource utilization, like my um, first thought is the way that we decide this is going to decide in some ways, what does the future of space look like? You know, does space, um, is it gonna be sort of the Wild West cowboy Star Wars or is it gonna be the more utopian futuristic Star Trek, right? Because how we handle this is going to determine 
who has access to these resources and who's able to to benefit from these resources in the future. You know, we're not at a point right now where we're going to be able to extract these in a meaningful and significant way in the next 10 or 20 years. But, you know, 100 years from now, the decisions that we make on the policy and the law side are going to affect what access to space technology and space resources looks like here on Earth. The Trump administration has very explicitly said that they don't consider space to be a global commons. Um, and this idea of the global commons is an idea that there are certain things that are open to all and are able to be utilized as all. Um, so the most easy one for most people to understand is to think of like international water or the high seas of the global commons. Um, that multiple nations can go onto the sea and can extract, you know, that can fish or they can do other things in the seas and they can benefit from that. Um, there are other, you know, land uses that um, think of like hunting and, and past times, like who had the right to go into a land and to benefit from that. And there's the idea that there are certain, um, certain resources on earth that belong to everyone. So the high seas, the air, right? You know, there, there's no academic or political agreement on whether or not that is. I tend towards the view in my own research that it is better to treat space as a global commons as it um, allows for better and more equitable regulation. Um, my research also goes on to um, sort of uh, decolonization of space or using this term of like, you know, when we use the term to say we're going to colonize Mars, you know, that's not an excellent term because we haven't really had great experience in history of humanity when we go to colonize people. Um, so we really should take it think of terms in, um, of settlements, or we're going to populate or settle um, and not recreate these sorts of um, power structures that benefit the most wealthy. And when we, we look at space resources and how we're going to use that, um, certainly um, considering that there are some countries that are much further along in, in their ability to extract this, that we risk recreating the same power structures with the resources in space that we created uh, in, when we industrialized as a as the globe, when we had industrialization across the globe, we sort of you know have to be careful and intentional about the way that we look at this if we don't want to end up sort of recreating some of the same problems that we have here on Earth once we are utilizing space technology in a more robust way and you know a decade or a century from now. Also at the International Astronautical Congress, we were talking about public and private partnerships. Um, I actually helped to organize a, um, a session during the cyberspace edition about that. And one thing that, that we talked about there is that developing nations, in order to be competitive in space, sometimes have to um, develop and utilize niche markets um, so that they can remain competitive and, and stay involved. Because there is a real... Um, possibility that that some people are left out of like the new space race uh towards you know who's gonna who's gonna get that um very valuable uh rare earth minerals that can be found on on asteroids in quite large amounts that would just completely flood the the earth with with valuable things that could be in trillions of dollars um so these are the conversations that we're having within international space law and international space policy and the Artemis Accords are really fascinating to say, um, how can how can this agreement, how will it work to help shape a more equitable future in space for the benefit of all humankind? Or will the Artemis Accords um, or anything that might come out of them as a mechanism to operationalize, operationalize the space treaty actually sort of recreate the less equitable environment in which we're already operating? 
here's the one thing that I find really interesting, because you made the comparison to, you know, fishing in international waters. It's crazy to me that you can't own the land as a nation, but you can own it as a private company. For me, the big difference here is, you know, like if you go fishing out in, uh, you know, international waters, you grab the fish, you can go home, you sell them. Great. When you come back, assuming you don't overfish, there will be more fish there and the fish will continue to repopulate as long as you, you know, don't take too much. The moon has a finite number of resources, uh, with the exception of incoming, you know, meteorite impacts, you're not really going to be getting more minerals or metals or whatever you're mining on the moon than what's already there. So I feel like that makes things a little murky when, yeah, you may own it privately, but technically you're owning that because no one else can get it. And even if you leave, there's going to be nothing left for others to come and take. Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent point, Sawyer. And and if we even think in terms of sort of the international fishing, you know, this is one of the reasons that we do actually have regulations um, that have been agreed upon through international frameworks that protect areas of the global commons, so areas of the high seas, to ensure that we're not overfishing. Because we did do that, right? There are certain species of fish that are now extinct or very vulnerable because they were overfished prior to international agreement um, on making sure that we, you know, you have to balance people's entrepreneurship or people's ability to make a living and sort of this commercial interest. You have to balance that commercial interest with what's best for the greater good of humanity or what's best for the greater good. And that's exactly what these this conversation around space resources is, is how do you balance the fact that these are finite resources, especially when you think of the moon. You know, the moon is necessary for our way of life here on Earth, right? Like we exist in a system with the moon. And if we were to overmine the moon, that could have devastating impacts for us here on Earth. Um, so probably we're going to see that even more. I think the moon will stay relatively protected. I don't think that that's going to be a place where you see a lot of arguments over. It's really going to come down to asteroids, right? Because asteroids um, are where a lot of these rare, possibly incredibly valuable minerals are that could come down to Earth and really just affect our economic system because of the, the amount of their value. Um, but you're right. Once someone goes to an asteroid and if there's a mining operation, let's say, you know, that um, goes and lands on an asteroid and they say, well, this is our asteroid, you know, we've we've created the safety zone and, you know, so that we make sure there's no conflict, no one else can come get the safety zone. Like in effect, that private company, if it is a private company, has made a territorial claim on that asteroid and no one else, once they leave that, once they've extracted the resources, you know, those resources aren't going to exist for someone else. And the cost that's going to be involved in setting up a mining operation on an asteroid is going to be prohibitive for them to just go there and say, okay, I've, you know, spent millions, billions of dollars to bring my mining operation to this asteroid and we're only going to take half of it and then leave. You know, that's just not reasonable and, and I don't think anyone expects that to happen. And we know that once there's private companies on, you know, asteroids or even on other, you know, terrestrial bodies, whether it be the moon, the Mars, or anywhere else, um, you know, looking at eventually moons of, of other uh, planets, like, you know, Jupiter's moons are so numerous, who knows, you know, what, what sort of exploration in terms of space resources could go on there. Yeah, they're saying they're not going to make a, a national claim like a nation, but 
if, you know, Elon Musk mining 2.0 goes to an asteroid, you know, that in, in effect is, is a territorial claim by a citizen of a nation. So it is, you're right, you, you put that out that, you know, these are finite resources, we can't manage them the way that we manage fishing to make sure that they can reproduce themselves. You know, these asteroids aren't reproducing themselves. The moon can't reproduce itself. Exactly. And, and that's what I think makes this even more interesting uh, about the whole trying to lay claims and, you know, how <laughs> the deals that will have to be made with private companies. It's it's scary, but it's something that we'll definitely have to keep an eye on as we go forward. And on that, I think that's such a thought provoking way to end this episode. So I'd like to thank you for joining us, Kat Robinson. Always, always a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. And thank you for joining us as well, Mark Ratterman. It's great to be here, and part two, Gene, missed you, dude. Look forward to the next chance we get to talk space. Agreed. Yes, Gene was unable to join us for recording tonight. We hope he'll be back with us soon, and of course, wishing him all the best, and wishing you all the best as well at home. Thank you for joining us, and as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. Mm-hmm.